At one point when I was in school, I went out for track, and uh, I didn't do so well. It's like most of the things that I tried that were sports-oriented, you know, I couldn't, they didn't, they asked me not to be, to come out to the basketball tryouts in seventh and eighth grade because I could not dribble and run at the same time. So <clears throat> me and sports have always had a difficult relationship. But I would still show up to the track meets, and I'd watch some of the stuff that was going on. And, and, the, and there was this one, there was this competition for, uh, for entrance into the state competitions where we were up against um, uh, a, a rival school, uh, the high school that, never mind, it was a rival school. And so uh, there was this relay race that was going on, and you know how a relay race works, right? There's, uh, there's a runner, he does one lap of the track and passes off a baton to the next runner, and he does a lap and he passes off a baton to the next runner, and so on and so forth. And you have to do this very precisely. You've only got a certain length of space within which to, to hand off that baton. And so we're watching our runners, and we know that this is an important competition. And the second runner is getting ready to pass the baton off to the third runner. And as they're going down the track, he, they fumble around with it. And all of a sudden, we see our baton just go bouncing off and spinning off to the end of the track. And, and of course, everybody went... <sighs> right? Because that was key. you got to be able to pass off a baton in such a way that the race can continue with some kind of effectiveness. You drop the baton, and then there's all manner of things that fall apart, right? Well, some weeks ago, a couple of weeks ago, I started a series of sermons called Passing the Baton. And, and the, reason, the reason is that my interim work is coming to a close. I have done all of the major pieces that I'm supposed to do as an interim pastor. <clears throat> and we are in, the, in that process right now of going through the second to the third lap, as it were, and we need to pass the baton off. I need to pass the baton off to the next guy. So this series of messages so that we can do that well. Right? So we can do that well. So this is the third sermon in a series of called Passing the Baton. And the first one that I preached, the first sermon that I preached is, How do you love your new pastor well? How do you love your new pastor well? And I took that from 1 Thessalonians 5. And we looked at several pointers that were there, and we said, well, you've got to let him lead. You have to let him lead, even though, you know, it's some, somebody, somebody new. Uh, he's, he's called to lead the congregation with the other elders. You need, you need to maintain congregational harmony. That, that is something that loves the new pastor well. Where each person is doing their part, there is this coordinated effort. Not everybody's in lockstep necessarily, but you're all moving in the same direction. And you're doing it with cooperation and harmony. Like playing a good symphony. You need to cling to the word. We said that was part of the uh, part of the pointers on how to love your pastor well. As the word is proclaimed to you and proclaimed faithfully, you cling to it. 
whether you fully get all of the connections at first or not, you cling to the word. And then you pray for your pastor and his family because the pressures of ministry are high. The second sermon that I preached on passing the baton was entitled Living Things Grow. And the fact that if we really have spiritual life in us, if we've really been born from above, if this church is more than just a social club, if it's a collection of people who have that kind of spiritual life and there is a sense of family within that community, then there's going to be growth. There's going to be growth. Because if God has placed his life in you, you will grow up unto Christ. You might grow through trial. You might grow through struggle. You might grow through God's love and grace and overwhelmingly abundant provision. But you're going to grow. You'll grow through faithful attendance in worship and faithful attendance in Bible study. Because it's by the word that his seed is planted in us. It's by the word that that seed is nourished. You'll grow individually and you will grow as a congregation. If it is God's life in you, you will grow. So that was our, that's our second message in passing the baton. Today we come to the third message. And the passage is taken from 1 Corinthians Chapter 3 and the first nine verses. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the first nine verses. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Even now you're not ready, for you're still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed. As the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So that neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one. And each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers You are God's field, God's building. This is God's word. Let's pray together, shall we? Lord, thank you for these words. Thank you for the struggles that the Corinthian church had with these things, and that these things are recorded for us, for our edification. And so we pray that you would open the word to us, help us to understand, help us to hear your voice And Lord, may we rejoice in how you deal with us in tenderness and in love. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This third message in the series actually addresses a a problem where we as Christians have a tendency in the church to exalt our ministers. 
even to exalt one minister over another. And the need of the church to receive the work of Christ's servant as Christ's wise appointment for the life of his church. That's that's really what this third message in passing the baton is about. Here's the context. The Corinthian church... The Corinthian church is, was a church that was established by the Apostle Paul. He was there 18 months, teaching in the synagogue at first. When he was driven out of the synagogue, he moved into a man's house next door, and he continued to teach any who would come and listen to him. And the result was that there was a sizable church that began to build up in Corinth, Corinth was an interesting mishmash of ideas. And the ideas came in from all over the place. And so all of these mishmash of ideas began to trickle into and filter into the Corinthian church so that, so that people were now starting to exalt one teacher over another. From Corinth, Paul went to Ephesus on his way to Israel. And after he left Corinth, Apollos, who was a Greek but well-studied in the word of God, Apollos came to Corinth and taught for a while. And it was described that he was eloquent and well-versed in the scriptures. Paul himself said of himself, look, when I came to you, I didn't have words of wisdom and I wasn't very eloquent. I held before you Christ Jesus and him crucified. And Apollos came after, and Apollos was eloquent. He, he, had, he had beautiful things to say. But then after Apollos left, there were other teachers that came in that Paul sort of dubbed super apostles. That is, they used... Greek elocution and Greek studies in order to embellish whatever they were teaching, and they just wowed the Corinthian church. And so what happened was the Corinthian people started, the people in the Corinthian church started to identify themselves with the different teachers that had arrived. Okay? And they adopted a sense of superiority based upon how they viewed the skill or the importance of the teacher of their choice. And they started to shift their affections from where their affections should be onto their teacher. They shifted from their their affections from where they should be onto the teacher's. Now listen, we do it too. Our hearts are idol factories. Our hearts are idol factories. We'll be captivated by all kinds of things that grab our attention for the moment. We'll be captivated by the style or the power or the eloquence or the sophistication or the tenderness of an effective teacher or preacher. And we will shift our affections. Now, This is a struggle for ministers. We're not just talking about, you know, people in various pews in the churches. We're talking about the ministers having these struggles too, okay? 
For example, when I was in seminary, I learned of pastors who were caught plagiarizing sermons from guys like John MacArthur, Tim Keller, um, people like uh, R.C. Sproul, James Boyce. The pastors were taking the sermons of these guys because they were popular and acceptable and really intelligent and just sounded really good, and they began to just lift those sermons and use them in their own church without acknowledging that that's where the sermons came, sermons came from. That's part of what we mean when we say, look, our affections have moved away from Christ and moved on to these teachers. Okay, That's what happens with ministers when we start thinking that it's more about their ability and the way they unfold the word of God than it is about Jesus himself who speaks to your hearts through the word proclaimed to feed your souls. Okay? So, we're tempted to do it as well. But the fact is that we've all seen congregations who have so exalted their ministers that they, they have basically turned the minister to, into an idol. Right? And it doesn't, we're not talking denomination here. This is across the board. It's across the board. And that's exactly what the Corinthians were going through. They were exalting their ministers. Uh, they were saying, well, look, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Peter. And then there's the really spiritual ones, right? I follow Jesus. Okay, so they were dividing themselves off into these little camps based upon their ministers. And so it would work out this way here. Boy, I really wish he would be like Joel Osteen. I love how Joel Osteen speaks. Or I just wish he was as entertaining as Chris Baker. Does that not sound ludicrous? That sounds ludicrous, doesn't it? But you get the idea. We shift our affections away from Christ, the Lord of glory, who is the author and finisher of our faith, and we start placing those affections and those interests on the man, the person who's teaching at that time. And Paul's correcting that attitude. He does this by clarifying how he views what he is and how he wants the Corinthians to view what he is. All right? But here's the point. The point is that as we are moving through a transition, as we are moving from me having been here for 18 months and handing things off to Chris Carpenter, my brother, a very gifted brother, for him to become the long-term pastor of the church, we want to be careful not to settle our affections on one minister or the other or maybe some previous minister. We want to make sure that our affections are settled on the Lord Jesus Christ as the one who loves his church and cares for his church and builds his church. Okay? So, I'm just going to be concentrating this morning on what Paul teaches us in verses 5 through 9. I'll be drawing out just a few points here. There's... Lots of little subtleties that I could probably bring out of the passage, but I just want to point out major things that you probably already know, so I will be reminding you of something that you know. I'm not actually doing anything eloquent or wise or spectacular. Paul starts out by saying this, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? It's interesting that he states it that way. 
You know what he's not saying? Who is Apollos and who is Paul? Don't you find that interesting? What is Apollos and what is Paul? He basically speaks of himself and Apollos as things in the master's household. Isn't that interesting? It evokes the memory of 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 20 through 21. Now, Paul says, in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Hear that? Paul is a vessel. Apollos is a vessel. Chris is a vessel, and Chris is a vessel. In our master's house. And so he goes on to say, Servants through whom you believed as the Lord has assigned to each. A servant is a deacon. The word there is deacon, diaconoi. Uh, somebody who waits upon tables. Somebody who is uh, an attendant in the master's house. And this, is, this word servant is really in contradistinction to the master himself. So at no point when you look at a minister in a church is he the master of the house. He's a steward. He's a servant. He is attending the table. Okay? And we always have to ask the question, whose servants is he? We already know the answer to that, don't we? So we don't need to really elucidate that one. But he says, through whom you believed. Now, it's true, we receive the word through the servant. He's a conduit. He's somebody who delivers what is given to him. He's the one who carries the food from the kitchen to the table. He didn't prepare the food. He, didn't, he's, he brought it. That's all it is. And Paul and Apollos, among all the other servants who came to the Corinthians, were merely vessels that carried something to the Corinthians for their growth in grace. And whatever it is we do, it is because the Lord has assigned it. So it's important not to think of each minister as being like all the other ministers any more than you would say, well, you know, I can do the same, same kind of work with a plow as this guy over here does with a planter. You get it? If, you know, when you go out and you plow the field, you use a certain device for plowing the field. And then when it comes time for planting or for preparing it further, then you, you go out and you disc the field, and you don't do that with a plow, you do it with the disc. And then when you plant, you have a different device again that's used for the, for the planting. Do you see? And that's how you have to view ministers who come into your church. They don't all do the same thing. They're not called to do the same thing. That hasn't been assigned to them for them to do the same thing. Jesus was going to 
minister and a centurion came to him and he said, Lord, uh, my servant is paralyzed and he's suffering and he needs help. And Jesus said, okay, I'll come with you. And the centurion says, no, Lord, you don't need to do that. I'm a man who's under authority, and I have people under me who are under authority. Just say the word, and it will be done. Ah. Assign whoever you do to do this, and it'll be finished, because they're under your authority. Your word is under your authority. And so we are men who are under authority. We are teachers who are under authority. It does not matter who you send, Lord. Send the word of healing and it will be done. The Lord sends different servants at different times to do different things to achieve his holy purpose in us and among us. And so it's okay that one servant might be a little more eloquent than the next. He might be pulling weeds. It's okay if one servant might be more personable than the next. He might be rearranging plans. It's okay because it's whatever Christ has appointed for that one to do. Paul talks about this at the beginning of the passage when he says... I fed you with milk, not solid food. Now, if you really look at Paul's ministry, Paul could have done these folks in with some serious steak. Some serious, meaty teaching from the Old Testament as to what God was doing through time in his great covenantal work of redemption. But he says, I fed you with milk and not solid food. That was Paul's job among the Corinthians. That was Paul's job. So Paul, who was sent as a servant to deliver what was committed to him, wasn't anybody especially significant. Apollos came after that with a word of exhortation and encouragement. And then Timothy came after him, and Sosthenes came with Paul at different points in order to minister among the Corinthian people. And Sosthenes had a different kind of a pastoral ministry than what Timothy and then what Paul did. Okay? Christ sends his servants. servants. And so... Paul sees the work as distinct from his own. Yes, they're doing the same sort of thing. No worker who comes to labor among you as the church does exactly what the one who came before. Before you start settling your affections on some previous pastor, ask the question, Lord, what are you saying to me through this vessel that you have appointed to this church because it is the Lord who is speaking and the Lord who is teaching and working we are servants the worker is God's worker the second thing here that I would draw out is that the field is God's field and responsibility. And he says, you are God's field. 
You are God's field. Basically this, it is God who is doing the work among you and causing the growth and the increase. That's what he says here, right? So you are God's field and God's responsibility, and we draw that really from verse 9. I realize I'm jumping to the end of the passage, but we've got to keep this clear. Because you are God's field, God will be pleased to work among you however he wishes. He might be pruning, he might be planting, he might be plowing soil, he might be picking rock. But he's going to do the work, and he's going to do the work that he wants in his church, and he's going to do it the way that he wants as he's here, because he loves his church. He loves his church more than any minister who ever shows up. I'm so full of self-love, it's appalling. And I know I'm cut from the same cloth as all of you. Sometimes we come to a church and we're so full of self-love, it's like we can't get past the bulletin cover. Right? We're so broken. And Christ is so patient with us, but he's going to do a work among us, and he's going to do it the way that he wants it done. Because he is the Lord of the church, the master of the house. And he wants his church to produce a certain kind of fruit for a certain kind of purpose. You are God's field, God's building. So I have two applications that come out of this. The first one to Chris Carpenter. Sir, I'm sorry it's so direct during worship, but I'm going to give it to you. This church will never be your church. This church was never my church. Not because I was an interim pastor. It just never was my church. And it was never Jacob's church. Those of you who thought this was Jacob's church, you really missed the boat. It's never been Jacob's church. And guess what? It was never Harry Losey's church either. And it was never Robert Spencer's church either. This is Jesus' church. He shed his blood for you. He hung on the cross and bled and died for you to win you back from sin and from darkness and from the devil. He's the one who laid in the grave for you. He's the one who resurrected unto power for you. He's the one who ascended into heaven for you and prays for you now. It's his church. You are his church. It always has been his church. We are servants in the field. We're sometimes out picking grapes. And we're sometimes out picking weeds. And we're sometimes out picking the dead branches off. But we're in the fields. So don't ever think that you can take possession of this church. Which, from what I know of you, brother, you won't. But I'll still remind you. Because it's kind of a reminder to me, too. To the congregation, when you're tempted to take your eyes off of Christ, you will place your eyes on something else. You will. It's just our hearts. That's what our hearts do. Walter Adney, an old Scottish preacher, said, The expulsive power of the new affection... That a new affection, when you get this new boyfriend or this new thing that you really love, it will drive out other loves. 
And it's our affection for Christ that will drive out other things. But when we take our eyes off of Christ and we start looking at something else that we can love, we'll replace it with something so inferior it's pitiful. Have you ever seen somebody who just, you know, loved their pet cat so much that they couldn't get anywhere without their pet cat? A substitute. It's like, well, I really don't like my sister, but I do like my, I love my pet cat. <laughs> when we take our, when we move our affection from somewhere, we are gonna, it's gonna land somewhere else. Okay. I was challenged with this at one point. My wife got pregnant. And she said, all right, now that I'm pregnant, you're going to have to get rid of that guinea pig. Uh, This is a tough call. (laughs) I love that guinea pig. And I was afraid to give it to my friend because he was a zoologist, and I really didn't want him experimenting on it. (laughs) But I worked it through. I love my wife. I got rid of the guinea pig. I guess that's why I named her Retina in the first place, so I could just say, here, you take this rat. I can't have it anymore. When your heart is drawn to some other object of affection, Prince Hill Presbyterian Church, when that starts to happen, the first thing you have to do is go to the Lord in prayer and say, Lord, this is your field. Have your own way with it. Lord, this is your field. Have your own way with it. This field, this church, will never be any mere man's church. Doesn't matter how much money he's got, doesn't matter how much community influence he's got, doesn't matter how successful he is, it doesn't matter how uh, personable he is. This is only Christ's church. And we have to ask the Lord, Lord, have your own way with this. In many, many ways, Princeville Presbyterian Church is yet to experience its full potential. In a lot of ways, beloved, your God is too small. He might have created the pulsars and the quasars and the galaxies and the planets and life, but you say to yourself sometimes, he's just not big enough to use us in any significant way. Your God is too small. He's able to use you in huge ways. It's God's field, and he's going to use this servant in this field. Lord, this is your field. This is the next thing you pray. Have your way with it, but Lord, this is your field. What do you want me to see concerning what's going on here? What are you doing here? And help me to get on board. The third thing I would draw from this passage is that the increase is God's increase. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So then neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters is one. You know, we're working the same field to the same end. But it's God who gives the growth. 
That growth will sometimes be deep. That growth will sometimes be high. It'll be broad and include lots. Sometimes that growth is for a greater flourishing, and sometimes that growth is for heavy fruit production. But God decides what kind of growth at what time. And the increase in this church is God's increase. And if we really want the church to grow, if we really want God's increase, then we cry out to him and say, Lord, do it. Do it here and use me to whatever end it is, to whatever purpose you have, so that we can grow, if, you, if we have a vision for that. And God will use you. You don't have to do anything mighty and majestic. The call is to be faithful. I don't have to be R.C. Sproul. I don't have to be James Boyce. I don't have to be Tim Keller or John MacArthur or any other you know, highly notable preacher. I have to be me, and I have to be faithful. You have to be you, and you have to be faithful. And say, God, what are you doing here? Use me to accomplish what you want as part of it. Okay? And we need to encourage one another that way as well. Because there are some people who flag, and they lose sight of this, and they forget it. And, they're, and they're, they're poorer for it. So they need to be drawn into to see what their calling and their gift is so that they might bless people with it. That's already started to take place here. It's been exciting to see. I've only been here 16 months, and I see this taking place, and it's a thrill. I'd love to stick around and see lots more. I'll be able to see it through my brother's eyes and when I come to visit. So the... The end of this, the whole point of this, is that whatever this ministry is, it's not about the man. And it's not about the man. It's about our Lord Jesus Christ. It's about where is God moving and how shall I get on board. It's about what is he doing and how shall I be part of it to his glory. We are servants through whom you believe. You're God's field. And God gives the increase, all of this, to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, who bought you and bound you together by his blood and his spirit. Amen. Let's pray together, shall we?